All right. For the love of God, I hope this works today. Jesus, Joseph, and Mary, please help me. My name is Luke Thomas. This is the promotional malpractice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll go usually for about 90 minutes today, a little bit less, because we got a bit of a late start, just making sure all the technology was arranged the way it was supposed to be. Uh, but we cover all the major topics in MMA that you want to discuss, like UFC on Fox 24, UFC 210, whatever the case may be, we'll get to it. Best place to do it, of course, is going to be on MMAfighting.com, where this window is embedded. Um, before we go any further, I have to apologize for last week. I know a lot of folks were like, why didn't you upload the audio to iTunes? Well, because it was garbage. That's why. I mean, it was a garbage chat, and it was garbage technology. And... Um, you deserve better than that, and I'm not going to waste your time by uploading crap onto your phone or your, whatever your devices that you use to listen to this podcast. So I apologize. I hope today will be better. I'm going to have the open window, um, uh, the interface that tells me what my volume is working on open. I usually don't like having it open because I have to read the site, but I'm just going to do my best to just constantly have it up. So if there's any issues, hopefully we can rectify them, but oh, Jesus, but fingers crossed we don't have any problems today all right let me adjust my seat there we are as you can see my beard is looking at a stage now where i am drinking 40 ounces and living under a bridge but i just don't care all right let's get it going And by the way, y'all bumped designer Jed's, uh, excuse me, Judd's uh, Instagram past 1,000. So good job on that, and thank you. All right, first question. Demetrius Johnson's dominance. With most dominant champions, you see each of their defenses getting progressively more difficult as the next challenger will study what previous challengers had success with, slowly forming a game plan to beat the champion. With Mighty Mouse, it seems some of his recent defenses have been his easiest and most dominant. What is it about DJ's game that makes it so hard to beat? Jesus, something people had negative stuff in there. Um, good question. Someone says, easiest how, or is the question, are DJ's defenses against weaker competition compared to, say, DC's resume? Well, partly that's been that case for a while, right? Where he was getting guys from Facebook prelims and they were getting bumped to the main card and they were simply out of their depth. There was, I think, a part of that as well. Um, I mean, look, people get better at certain stages in their life, right? So there can be times in their life, um, you, you can group it by age, you can group it by what they were doing at that age, where they were at that age, what sort of um, training environments, environments they're putting themselves in, what kind of commitment they had. And Demetrius Johnson has been one of these guys who was always, in my judgment, very, very talented athletic, athletically and, um, and was really good at making incremental progress over time. But remember, initially fighting at bantamweight, I think part of the, what we've had to do is sort of reform who we thought of he was. And, and, uh, and remember, even when he went to flyweight, he had the tough fights against Benavidez in the first one, and then... Um, arguably lost the Ian McCall fight. So there's been something of an undoing of initial impressions over time. That's been one of the issues. The second one, though, I think is that, like, look, when you get out of college, 
this is a different example because we're talking about athletic talents here, but consider that some of the more successful people after you get out of college are those who are good self-learners. Some people are really good at being classroom learners. Like in those environments, they really thrive. And people who are not good classroom learners, in your experience to them, you might think that they have, if not outright learning disabilities, certainly just they can't really seem to get things going in that environment. And they become what you find out is they're really good self-learners after the fact. And then later on in life, these are people who will have success that surprises you. Um, Demetrius Johnson isn't just a guy who's made incremental progress as such. He is a guy who has largely, number one, found a way to stay healthy, and number two, intuitively thinks about the game in a way where um, he is able to spot and identify any kind of, like, rather than having any kind of superpower, he's really good about trimming away fat that or weaknesses. He has a really good eye for that kind of thing, which at first doesn't really show up because there's so much of it. Whatever incremental progress you make doesn't really show. But as it's really gotten quite narrow and as it's gotten less of it to take off, you can see now incrementally this has made uh, a major, major contribution to his game over time. To me, that's really what separates him is that he has a very strong identification of his personal weaknesses, of his opponents, and he has steadily worked to eliminate those to the extent possible in a way most guys either won't or can't. It's not that guys don't work on their weaknesses. They'll often work on their weaknesses by having overcoming, overpowering strengths or something like that. Something like Anthony Johnson, where he didn't really work on his weaknesses. He just made what he was already good at even better. Demetrius Johnson is sort of the opposite of that in a sense. Now, not directly, of course, but um, he is a guy that has just a really keen eye for what's not going as well as it should be, figuring out what to do to take that away. And th what that does is it puts the floor on his game much higher. And so we've talked about it before. He has a general overall level of great skill. I think he also has a really good general level of athleticism. Like he's not the fastest guy, although he's very, very fast. He's not the strongest guy, although he's pretty strong. He's not the hardest hitter, although he can hit pretty hard. But you get the sense that he's good enough in every one thing that when you take away the weaknesses associated with that might come with even one of those strengths, um, that the overall package is so malleable to so many different situations. He can really just transport himself in a fight to do whatever needs to be done to address any kind of scenario because the weaknesses are so few and far between. You know, is he the very fastest guy in flyweight? Maybe he is, but, it, it, you know, Benavidez might be as well. McCall might be as well, right? You could at least envision a scenario in that case. Is he the hardest hitter? He might be up there, but I don't know if he's the hardest guy. I mean, Lineker, when he made flyweight, was that kind of guy. You get my point. Um, it's something to be said for, it's not being a defensive fighter. It's what are the things where guys take advantage of me and what can I do to get around that? And you'll note, I think one of the reasons why that thesis of his success is strong, oops, hold on, is because this is why he still has problems with size because he can't correct for that. There's no correcting for that. Um, you could put on a little bit of extra weight, but then the weight cutting becomes harder. If there's a major size differential and you compete optimally at a certain size, there's really very little wiggle room to, to, to go about there. Some adjustments, yes, but that really is the one enduring thing that gives him problems. I think if he went back to bantamweight, he would find similar um, similar challenges. You know, when he, when he fought Dominic Cruz, he didn't look technically outmatched. 
it just looked like Cruz was able to combine both his technique, his particular brand of athleticism, and that size in the wrestling game to just control DJ. And I don't know if that would really fundamentally change if he went back. Maybe it wouldn't be quite as bad. But you can see even in the Elliott fight, when guys lock up with him, um, he has a bit of a problem with it. It's because when it comes to where his feet should be, when it comes to the timing, when it comes to the entry on strikes and the angles on a double jab, when it comes time to finding the right moment to shoot, when it comes time to find the right moment to clinch break, making sure his hands are up on the clinch break, all those things he can work on, he does, particularly in raising the floor. But the size thing, there's just so little he can actually do about that. That's why it's an enduring challenge for him. That, that to me, is really why Demetrius Johnson has gotten so good. He has really um, kept up his strengths and substantially undercut the uh, problems that he used to have um, as he developed over time. Uh, why do people keep saying DJ title defenses were against weaker competition? What makes you think Gustafson is a better fighter than Benavidez or Dodson? Well, those are all great fighters, but the idea is that if you have a division that's been around a really long time and you've got guys who are the best of a crop in the most modern era of it, it stands to reason that those guys are probably going to be arguably, not always, but in this particular case, certainly the best light, light heavyweights ever. Like Jones and Gustafson and Teixeira and you know Rumble or DC, those are better than Tito and Vitor and Couture and Chuck ever were um, by a country mile. And so it takes time for this maturation of talent, this recruitment of talent over time. Now, it may also be the case that it could be a very long time before we see guys significantly better than Dotson or Benavides or whatever the case. But but um, the idea is not that those guys are bad fighters. They're very, very, very good. It's just that when you look at how tough it's become at light heavyweight because the division has had time to mature uh, and all the trimmings that come with that, which is you know recruitment and everything else, best practices being spread generally, and uh, having a more global reach. You know, flyweight doesn't have as much of a global reach as some of these other divisions, and as a consequence, I think people are, are right to say that you know those guys are great, but this is an early generation of flyweight. Let's see what the next one or two of them look like. Uh, new overbooking policy. Oh, y'all want to get into this? Do you agree that airlines should have CCTV cameras watching to see if people yank on the back of a chair to get into their seat and that these are the people that should be removed first when an airline overbooks? Yes. If you have to lean on the chair in front of you to stand out or to sit your rear end, you need to stop doing quarter squats and you need to do squats altogether. You have very weak muscles. That is what you are signaling to the world. Hello, world. I'm a weak person. Don't don't be that guy or that lady. I see a lot of ladies doing that. Ladies, beach season's around the corner. Time to start doing some ATG squats. Uh, I think this would make everybody happy. And then people, you know what's amazing? He goes, it wasn't overbooking. That's when the airline sells more seats than are available. This was an attempt to get some United crew free seats. Backfired. Didn't really backfire at all. This whole United thing has been quite funny to me. Like, I, I mean, there's no defense of like what they did to an extent anyway. Like, just calling the cops to beat on a guy like this is just—it's terrible PR, um, and not the optimal way to handle this. Not even close. There was a number of measures they could have tried both before the, before this and after this to prevent the scenario, and they didn't do that thing. And then you know, roughhousing a guy off the plane. 
Um, even if he has to get off at some point, uh, it's just a terrible look. So there's no defense of what United did to that extent. But like everyone being like, boy, United's really going to pay. No, they're not. They're not going to pay at all. Did you see their stocks? They're almost back to normal today. Same with Pepsi's too. The airlines have you by the balls. The airlines, there's a handful of them. In certain markets, they operate upwards of 45% of the overall volume of business. Um, Chicago being one of them for United, which is a hub uh, for them. Uh, the idea that, uh, look, if you don't fly Delta, then you won't, or if you, if you fly Delta, you're not going to fly United. If you're a member of American Airlines, well, of course, you're not going to go fly United. But like the number one factor, an overwhelming amount of airline research suggests that what they really care about is low airfare. And when you have only a handful of airlines to choose from and such a premium placed on cheap air, you know, as well as I do, in the words of Conor McGregor, you'll do nothing. Everyone loved to make jokes on Twitter about how they're never, look at what, look at what United's doing. Look at what, I'm never going to fly United again. You're a liar, and I don't believe you. I don't believe you for two seconds. I don't believe you. You mean to tell me if you have to fly home and the best way to get there is on United, you're not going to do it, let's say, for Thanksgiving? You're a liar. You're a total liar. If it's convenient to avoid, you might. You might for a time, but this is not sustained. Their stocks have almost already returned to normal because we live in a scenario where your choices are already limited and what you really care about the most is getting there. And did you notice that when the cops were just smashing this guy to pieces, what the rest of the passengers did? Did one of them, one of them, get up and walk out off of the plane in solidarity? Nope. That's how little they care. You know what they said? I think I'm going to make my connection in Omaha now that this joker's off. They didn't care. They pulled out their cell phones and put it on Twitter. Big deal. That's easy to do. No one cares about that. This idea that people are going to protest and then take their dollars elsewhere, you have very few other places to take your dollars. If you already don't fly United, yeah, you won't start. And if it's easy to avoid, you will. But if you can get to sunny Antigua for 179 bucks on United and it's 210 or 220 on Delta, guess which airline you're flying. They'll say, yeah, sure, that cop or uh, sure that uh, doctor who lost his license for 10 years because he did get, that's the best part. Not only did they not walk off the plane in solidarity, <laughs> then there were articles smearing this guy's background. I mean, this idea that like consumers are going to get together to show United what time it is. Jesus Christ, what's happening here? They calling me. They're going to show United what time it is. You are delusional. You are totally delusional. It will go back to normal in days. You don't have choices, and the thing you care about most in that world of lack of choices is, I just want this to be cheap. It is overwhelming. And by the way, if you don't already know this, two-thirds on average of all airline revenue comes from business class and up, and especially in the case where United, where they have business and first class, it's even more for them. Economically and financially speaking, if you ride coach, and that's all I ride this coach, you are there to fill the plane. They don't really make a ton of money off of you, and they don't really think very highly off of you. And if you think for two seconds, yes, Delta has a policy where they ask you what it would take for you to give up your seat up front, and then so through this process, they're able to have much fewer incidences, or JetBlue, which doesn't have a lot of connecting flights, so they don't have hardly any overbooking like this. I get that there's better things that they could do. I'm not defending what United did. I'm defending the idea that you're not going to do anything about it. Um, um, the, if you think another airline wouldn't do that, you're out of your mind. They would absolutely do that to you. None of these airlines care about you. None of them. United just happened to show their hand. Delta would do it if they were forced to do it too. 
you know? So everyone's like bitter at United. Be bitter at United. Don't fly them if you don't want to. But do I really think you're going to fly to an airport that's 150 miles away because they're not a United character? You can say whatever you want on social media. You're not telling the truth, and I don't believe you. I don't believe you at all. Stocks are going right back where they were. And by the way, they were like, they lost a billion overnight. If you look at their overall stock performance over the course of a year, it is a blip on the radar screen. You can barely notice movement. These people talking about like day trading losses as if this is some kind of examination of true wealth. You take that shit to another sucker because it doesn't work around here. Sorry. So, you know, be mad at United, right? Like make jokes about them. Don't fly them if you don't want to. But the truth is you're going to even if you don't want to, because if it's the most convenient and it's the cheapest and it's the easiest and you're just trying to get through the process, you're going to fly United. You're just going to take your chances. You are. You can say you're not, but you are. <laughs> and I don't believe any of you who say you're not going to, except for maybe two of you who will have to then fly, you know, well, I was going to fly to Atlanta. Now I have to fly to Jacksonville. I got to drive seven hours north. Yeah, good luck. Way to stick it to United. All right. Oh, they're going to lose a lawsuit. Yeah, they'll pay this guy off. So what? So what? You think they give a shit about that? Come on, y'all. Please. Live in the, I, consumers, and I'm a consumer like you. I don't fly business class. I haven't flown business class ever in my life, I don't think. I fly coach. We love to think that we can really mm, rise up and stick it to the, to, the, to the man, to the corporate man. Sometimes we can. It's pretty rare. And this is not one of those cases. You don't have choices. You need them a lot more than they need you. I hate to tell you that, but it's true. Y'all can say whatever you want. Yeah, here we go. Here, Slacker2 in the comments is in deep, deep denial about this. Super deep denial. Except another airline hasn't done it. Oh, no, maybe not in the social media age. You don't think Delta's ever ripped a guy off of a plane? Come on, man. Y'all are living in a dream world. I love people like he's a doctor. He needs to get to the next place. I don't give a f an F if he's a doctor. I don't care if he's an unemployed and he just needs to go pick up a bong. That's not relevant to who gets to be on the plane. You know, he's a doctor. He needs to go help people. He needs to fix his malpractice issues. All right. John Jones tune-up fight. John expressed interest in the tune-up fight first before facing DC against who would you like him to see if he would get a tune-up fight first and when do you expect his return? Not only that, uh, okay, last thing on this, last thing on this, because Slacker 2 is having tremendous issues understanding how real life works. He goes, Delta hasn't ripped a guy off a plane. It's illegal. It's so not illegal. It's super not illegal. There was a New York Times article about this yesterday. It's like, if you have a boarding pass and you've boarded and you've paid for your ticket, can a, why do you have to get off the plane? Right. Do you understand the cops removed him? Now, the way in which the cops removed him or what this the contract says about um, what a ticket entitles you to might cause some lawsuit complications, which they'll just pay off and be done with. But the issue is you don't own the plane. Uh, it's not your property. You can't squat on it. Now, ripping an old guy off violently is a terrible way to handle this problem. This is not going to work ever. Um this is not real responsiveness to customers, but you don't have a right to squat on it. That's why the cops forcibly removed him. You have to get off. If you don't get off, they just either won't take off or they'll take everyone else. You're going to get off that plane one way or the other. You can't physically occupy a space 
that's privately owned in that particular way. There's even public places where you can't do that. So, I mean, you guys, again, if you want to be mad at United, I'm not I'm not defending what they did. What they did is horrible. But this idea that everyone's going to protest en masse to really show them, show me. Let's have this conversation again next week. Let's see how United's performance looks. Yes? Okay. Uh, yes, the contract says they can't. I know. I know. I know you live in a dream world. Enjoy. All right. John Jones tune-up fight. Who would you like to see him, and when do you expect his return? Well, as everyone's saying he's going to come back in July. I don't. I, I'm still not clear to me that they can promote him um, as a consequence. So, of the suspension. So I don't know that the July timeline makes sense. It looks more like August or maybe something in September, something like that, um, which would not be ideal. But it would at least allow you to put him as a co-main event potentially in that GSP versus Bisping main card, if that's what you wanted to do. But if they want to do a tune-up fight, something a little bit easier. I don't know, pick on down the line. You know, um, Patrick Cummins just seems a little bit too, not the right matchup, but I don't know, something along those lines, a Blachowicz or Blahovich or somewhere in that space, 8-ish to 12-ish, somewhere in there. Some people saying Jimmy Manoa, you could do that too. I wouldn't be opposed to that. I think that would be an okay one. It'd be a much tougher challenge, but it's one that would I, I don't think is unreasonable. Um, tough fighter, tough fighter than you think it might be. I mean, it took Gustafson, uh, you know, um, having to deal with a lot uh, in parts of that fight. So so you could go that direction as well. I even spoke to his coach, Brandon Gibson. They wouldn't be opposed to it. But there's just, just – this, uh, I, I, and again, I, you know, Brandon Gibson doesn't handle his matchmaking or his you know, his, man, his management of his career. But uh, in speaking to a lot of managers and trainers, what the default position appears to be is, you know, we're only going to take what fights are offered to us. Now, if you're Conor McGregor, you can sort of call your shots a little bit more. Um, but there's there's not really a whole lot of like asking for tune-up fights. There's this culture of not really asking for it. There's this culture of not really having to um, go out and say, hey, what about that one that's really off the beaten path that we're, you know, by all measurements, we're way better than this guy and way ahead of him, but that there's a value given the two years of inactivity, more or less, that has happened um, around his various suspensions that we could, there's a benefit to doing this transaction. They don't really do that. They kind of say, well, let's see what the UFC gives us. And it's not that I don't think they give feedback, but they don't ever seem to, like, there's just this real sense of we just wait to see what the ocean delivers to us as the waves crash in and we'll just sort of farm the beach for artifacts it's not there's not a whole lot of like let's go you know let's go scuba dive and see what we can find i mean this is a terrible analogy i'm taking way too far but you get the idea there's just not a lot of that it's very much whatever they're on the receiving end of is what they'll take and i don't i would like to see if there's a, if there's any kind of way maybe there's not but i would like to see if there's a way where they could go out and say look we we need a tune-up fight if you want this guy to return to form, you need – I mean, look, you should be able to say, well, you need big stars. And John or whoever is a big star, but they – we are going to ruin something if we don't manicure the right way. And I don't think I can say that my analysis of what happened with Chris Weidman is on the money because there are parts of how that stoppage went down that are very confusing for all the parties involved. And he could have easily come back. He won that first round. So I wouldn't say that. But – this was my point. Generally, it's like, why even take a risk where something could go amiss? What if you twist your ankle? What if you get a weird controversial referee call and you have a weird controversial way in which the commission handles it? What are you going to do? You know, it looks like, according to Eric McGracken over at Combat Sports Law and Philip Klein, these are two attorneys who have experience in the MMA space, both feel like the chance of a Weidman uh, challenge to what happened is dead on arrival. 
you know, and we all know that commissions shield themselves from any kind of revision, except in the case of the most egregious behavior. And you might say this is egregious to you, but when I say egregious, I mean like arithmetically not being able to add numbers on a card for judges or, um, you know, insane incompetency from a referee, which you can't really say in this particular case. You could say that maybe Dan's positioning in a linear fashion wasn't right. As Herb Dean told me, he had to be sort of triangular with it, right? Um, Illuminati. <laughs> but, uh, it, it, you know, you run that kind of risk, man, versus taking on a Gareth McClellan, versus taking on a, I don't know, something like that. You say, well, that fight's not interesting to me. Well, if you're Chris Weidman, did this did this make sense? Go back to Ronda Rousey. Oh, well, we need to make money off of her. Right now, look where you are. Like, we keep making this mistake over and over again. We're like, well, we need to go make money. We need to be the biggest fight possible. And then we ruin any chance of future earnings or future growth. I don't I don't get it, man. I, I, I really believe that we have some rethinking to do. And I've got some thinking on this I'm trying to put together for a bigger piece on it. But... Uh, I, I I really believe that there's a better way to handle this. So um, I don't know what John's going to do in terms of who they want or who they could take, but I know his coaches are in favor of it. Sounds like he's in favor of it. I would be in favor of it. If they want to do it no less than Manawa, that's okay by me too because um, that's a good test. That's a great test for somebody who's that good, who's had that kind of time off, and for someone like Manawa who's they made that kind of improvement. Someone says OSP was a tune-up fight, so it does happen. Right, but the difference was – it was so late in the um, development of the fight that he didn't really have time to train around it. When I say when I say this, I'm talking about ideally somebody who you can prepare for, and it doesn't have to be the biggest, longest camp in the world. You know, six weeks or something. It's really all you need for somebody if you're that much better than them. But you know, I don't know why we just keep feeding these guys back to these terrible circumstances, and then they get chewed up because they haven't had a chance to regain their, you know. Their, their career footing, and then now look where are they. I mean, it's just a terrible play. Chris Weidman, like three in a row like this, and I get it. It's super controversial, and maybe he doesn't deserve this third one, but that was the risk you ran when you took that fight, you know? Um, Here we go. Chris Weidman's losing streak in his future. Regardless of whether NYC overturns the Musasi fight to a no contest, Chris Weidman has failed to get a win in three straight fights. Shouldn't he take a lower caliber fight now? Yes! Yes, he should take a very low-caliber fight. He should be on a prelim card, for crying out loud. At the post-fight presser, Weidman said that he isn't interested at 205 right now, so who at middleweight should he fight to help push him back on track? Gareth McClellan. Somebody. Talos Lightes. Somebody like that. Somebody who is either somewhere close to 10 or behind it. Um, this needs a very manageable fight. I cannot believe... I mean, I really, really hope that they give him that. And look, if you can't win that, then okay. Then maybe the day, the, Jesus Christ. <laughs> they call in me. All right. But the damage, you know, maybe it's been, maybe it's been done. But if it hasn't, I would like to see a guy like this have a chance to, to rebound. Does a fight with someone like Brunson ranked eighth make sense? I would go lower than that. I'm really glad you interviewed Herb Dean. It was very interesting to hear his take on an incident from Saturday night. Thank you. Yeah, well, thanks to Herb. Also, are we allowed to be happy for Musasi? That's an interesting question. I feel like the right man still won here, given the circumstances, right? The whole situation is awful, and I think Weidman deserves for 
deserves things to be overturned or whatever the equivalent is. But all things considered, this feels like a pretty legit victory for Musasi, in my opinion. If there's no rematch, he should get a shot at one of the remaining top three and maybe even switch with Weidman in the rankings. But that's interesting. Should we be allowed to be happy for Musasi? I guess so. I guess in the sense that like he lost that first round, but he looked pretty good in the second one. Was on his way to appear to be winning the second one, potentially even a stoppage. But folks forget he was mounted in that second one, you know, briefly. Uh, managed to reverse it, but then Weidman reversed that and then stepped away. So in the grappling department, Weidman was having a ton of success. Like he's really, really good there. Um, it was in that stand-up, man. It was a it was a front kick, almost like a step kick uh, into position, followed by the left that cracked him initially. Weidman never saw it coming, and he got piled on from there. And um, obviously, he had that sort of lazy shot that Musasi was able to stuff. It's impossible to say what would have happened. So, like, if you want to be happy for Musasi because you're a fan, sure. And if you want to say I saw enough in that fight to give me indication that he was competitive and could have won it, I think you can even say that. But that's very, very different than saying. Um, if they fought again, would it go a similar way? Probably wouldn't. Or had that fight continued, what would it have looked like? Chris may have been able to get takedowns. I mean, folks forget, and that was the Demi and Maya fight. I mean, he just took that. Was I think it was the Demi and Maya fight, right? Where he just took him down over and over and over and over and over again. And this was when he was like way overweight and had cut a ton of weight to get there. And, and nevertheless, did it. Was that the Demi and Maya fight? Now I'm freaking out about it because I can't remember. That was before he was still at middleweight, before he had jumped down. I believe that's right. Man, can you believe that Demi and Maya lost to Mark Munoz? I forgot about that. Yeah, this is UFC on Fox 2, I believe, Evans versus Davis. And uh, Chris Weidman just, just took him down over and over again. All right. It's still that... It doesn't give Musasi what he really needs. Like that affirmative moment where it's like, okay, there it is. Boom. Did it, you know, did it. He, he didn't get a chance to really do that. And I think that's unfortunate. It's not, it's one thing to say, well, is there probable or cause or is there, you know, a reasonable degree of evidence to suggest things could have gone well for him? Yeah, there was. It's not the same as silencing any kind of notion of doubt. Right, Conor McGregor beat Eddie Alvarez, just silenced any notion of doubt about how that matchup could have or would have gone. You know, can you imagine if there had been something like that in that Conor McGregor fight where I don't know if Conor had shot or, or they just found themselves in that kind of scramble and then something like that had happened? Uh, it would be bedlam, you know, and rightfully so. Someone says, I feel like this controversy is the worst thing for Weidman as it's very possible a rematch is made instead of him getting lower-ranked fighter and he'll go 0-4. Someone says, there's no reason to review the decision according to the New York Athletic Commission statement. Instant replay was legal, sort of. And Weidman didn't know what day it was. He said February. So doctor has a right to declare him unfit. Yeah, that's what they said. Um... Someone's asking about my post-fight shows that I do on my personal YouTube channel. You still put the results in the description box. Yep, there's a reason for that. Uh, whether it's Twitter or in YouTube, uh, let's see. 
Second, I noticed a real trend of hating on Chris Weidman and in many cases discrediting him and his accomplishments and also not giving him props for winning most of the fight with the guard until the controversy. Yeah, when you lose, everyone thinks you're an idiot and everything you think is an idiot is idiotic and there's nothing good you could possibly say. When you win, you're a genius. This is the, this is the way in which we label and, and uh, magnify um, winners. Oh, look at how smart they are. Did everything. I mean, they could have lucked into half of the things they did. And we're still going to call them geniuses. And conversely, we're going to say that the people who lost really need to figure things out and just totally mismanaged it. When in fact, they may have had a lot of things going correctly. It just there was one or two small things could have gone wrong. So this is an inevitable consequence. But at the same time, three losses in a row, it's not the same as one loss or two losses even. Um, it was really ill-advised to take this fight at this time in his career. I stand by that. I don't think it was a good idea. I don't think the UFC should have done it. I know they need a big fight, but, like, this is not okay. So, uh, you know, look where you are now. These, these, these good fighters in tough situations need a break. It's a reality we have to wake up to. They can be good again, but they need a break. And just constantly putting them into the meat grinder, it's not going to work. Not often, anyway. Cub versus Artem. Cub versus Artem. Can you do an in-depth breakdown of this fight? Yeah, next week. Who do you think will win it, Cub? I mean, Artem has a chance. He's a big power hitter. How will it play out over the course of five rounds? I have a strong belief this will not go five rounds. Uh, what do you make of Cub Swanson always being quite a calm guy and getting fired up for this fight? Yeah, I've talked to him about. I talked to Cub about this when this fight uh, got announced, and I was like, "Dude, you got a lot to lose here." He's like, "Yeah, no, I do. I mean, he's got way more to gain. I've got way more to lose." But um, he seems energized by it. Like it's a chance for him to not only win, but to win in pretty spectacular fashion to show, as they say in soccer. I hate this description, but they use it everywhere to show his class. Right, this is a chance for him to do that. Uh, whether he will or not, I don't know. You know, Artem is here's the thing about Artem. You know, everyone clowns on Artem a little bit, but um, he's gotten better. I'm not saying he's as good as Cub, believe me, not saying that at all. But if you're asking me, like, is the Artem who's competing now, um, I gotta keep checking his audio, is the Artem who's competing now as good uh, as the one who was, you know, when we first got introduced on Ultimate Fighter, I mean, he's significantly better now. Takedown defense is better. Range is better now. Combinations are better. He still has a ton of liabilities, yes. But he's a much more competent striker. He's a better risk manager. He seems more fundamentally aware of what he's good at and what he needs to do to win. Um, I don't think he's good enough to beat Cub, but the crazy things happen in MMA, you know? So if Cub is not careful, if he doesn't have a good day, and Artem has a good day. It's possible things can go. But if you know, if Artem has a good day, but Cub also has a good day, Cub shouldn't lose. What do you think of the AJ appeal on the whole towel towel seven incident? That is hilarious. That is super super funny. Towel seven. Get it? Tower seven. Um, I don't mind it at all. I don't mind it at all. Folks are saying, like, what's the point? If you're retiring, this is a bad look. I don't know, y'all. I mean, I got hit up a bunch. I mean, I don't know how the rest of the MMA media uh, dealt with fans' interaction, but I had tons of MMA fans 
email me, Facebook me, tweet me, even Instagram me, asking like, "Was MMA Media going to do about this?" And I kept trying to tell them like, I, "I don't know what we can honestly do about this." For crying out loud, like we we asked the commission, "Yo, did you see him lean on the towel?" No, we didn't see it. Right here's video evidence of it. You know, too late. It's like I just. At some point, if the commission says no, just no, what are we going to do? I mean, we can't take them to court. I mean, I guess we could take them to court for y'all, but we're not going to. Um, at some point, there's just a limit at what kind of power the media can exercise over the situation. And I agree, it's kind of messed up, but that's the way it goes. But if you're Anthony Johnson, like, did that pound really make a difference in the end? No, I don't think it did. But that's not the point. Actually, um, I, I spoke, I was on uh, Frank Mir's podcast and Richard Hunter's Frank Mir's podcast last night. And Frank Mir made a point. I thought it was pretty good. It's like, look, this is a guy who uh, had trouble making weight in various points in his career, was still a pound over. If I'm fighting that guy and I'm looking for a competitive advantage, I'm going to tell him to go sweat it out. You know, what did they tell Anthony Johnson about this? Like uh, that he had missed and that he had an additional two hours? Like to what extent was the information properly relayed about this? And, you know, and then look, if you're just looking for a scientific explanation about how you can lose a pound and uh, 0.2 of a pound in two and a half minutes, there's not a whole lot of theories better than he leaned on the towel. Um, I can't prove that's what it was, but that seems pretty likely. So in the end, competitively, I don't know how much of a difference it made for the particular circumstances involved, but his stated purse in a non-title fight for his last one was $500,000. So if you get 20% of that, that's a hundred grand. Go get your hundred grand. You're entitled to it. Uh, or, you know, there's a reasonable argument to say you're entitled to it. So I have no problem with it. You know, I, I don't know. I'm like, I, I'm, I'm a little surprised. Some of the fans are like, Towelgate is this important thing. Towel 7, as they're calling it. That's so funny. And now someone's doing something about it. And I see some fans being like, oh, this is, I don't want it. No, go get it. If, if you have a right to that money, you should go get it. It's yours. It's your money. And it's six figures. Go get paid. Are people sleeping on Aldo? Hi, Luke. Do you think people are sleeping on Jose Aldo and have forgot how good he is? Yeah, of course. Can you do a quick breakdown of this fight with Holloway and give us your thoughts on how you think it will go? Man, did y'all see that stare down? I'm not saying it was the most intense stare down I've ever seen. I'm not saying it was the best stare down I've ever seen. I'm not saying any of those things. What I'm saying is it was great. And I've made this point before, almost more than any other division. I'm not saying more, but pretty close. Certainly, Featherweight is up there as being one of these divisions where youthful, promising talent is beginning to rise to the top and challenge the old guard. And Conor McGregor came through like a tornado and just moved on. But now it feels like he's been gone long enough where um, it's like Featherweight is looking great. Not just looking great, but like this Holloway versus Aldo matchup to me feels super interesting. Like, obviously, Aldo has the stain on his career from what went wrong with McGregor, and that will always be there. But he had this long resume before that, and he might have one after that as well. And it's worth taking into consideration just the, the – the, forget Conor McGregor even exists. This is a great fight. This is a great fight um, for all of the narrative reasons why it's a great fight. But then more than that, from an in-fight perspective, the way in which it could go could be really interesting. Uh, a guy like Jose Aldo, who is an incredible – takedown defense is phenomenal – one of the best leg kickers MMA has ever seen. Um, super athletic, the whole bit. Like all the things we know about him are just tremendous. And what he showed at that UFC 200 fight against Frankie Edgar was 
you know, a phenomenal rebound, man, a really phenomenal rebound. And Max Holloway is on a warpath. And Max Holloway, what's he really good at? Number one, everything. Reminds me very much of Demetrius Johnson, really raised the floor on his game. Also the ceiling as well for him too. But on top of that, makes really good in-fight adjustments. Takes away things guys are good at. Puts pressure on guys. I can see Aldo winning that fight early, keeping the fight at kickboxing range, stuffing all takedowns, evading any kind of forward pressure from Max Holloway, blasting them with leg kicks. And then over time, I can see Max Holloway absolutely digging into that lead, getting inside boxing range, putting combinations on him, forcing him to shell up and just beating on him, beating on him, beating on him, beating on him. Like to me, that one could be really interesting. Can Max Holloway even take Jose Aldo down? Can he take him down? Can he hold him down? Can he take his back? Um, this is this is a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal featherweight fight. Very competitive, it feels like on paper. And to me, if Max Holloway wins, man, you want to talk about a revolution at featherweight, that changes the whole game again, right? Uh, one of the young guns working through the whole... I mean, this guy has been through the ringer, folks. Going up there and doing what he's done. And... Um, now you've got a whole fresh set of matchups up there. You might have something enough to entice McGregor back down. Maybe not. Maybe he's sort of ultimately just really done with featherweight. But nevertheless, you could wonder. It's certainly a possibility. But nevertheless, it would just show this maturation of the division. It would show this incredible story of Max Holloway. I think it would provide sensational action generally. I, I love this fight. I love everything about this fight. I love how fresh it feels. It feels like Jose Aldo is in a fight that feels new and interesting to me. He's got all these old baggage he was carrying around, either with McGregor or others, that for a moment in time, all that's gone away. And I don't really care about you know title versus interim title or any of that stuff. But for the first time in a long time, you know, Jose Aldo is in a new fight with a new challenger that seems very unique. And you just wonder, is this the moment in time where someone can beat him? And I'm not saying Conor McGregor got lucky. I mean, the 13, you know, that shot he planned, he landed it, he's a hard hitter, all that kind of stuff. What I mean is, in a more thorough way, in the way that Holloway does, Holloway audits people. Can he audit Aldo over time enough to show that, like, he's just a superior fighter? Um soup to nuts that to me it's just it's an, it's a great 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 featherweight fight really really looking forward to that one this is a good question um cynthia calvijo usually when we see purple belts in the ufc they are strictly in survival mode when it goes to the ground how's calvijo just been fighting equally as inexperienced grapplers or is her jiu-jitsu more advanced than purple belt this is a really interesting question because I, I keep trying to explain to people like what it means to be you know, a purple belt, you get a lot of people who, who you see a purple belt and you think it's a uniform standard. Oh, he's got a purple belt. He's got a purple belt. They got a purple belt. Are you blue or brown or black? Whatever. And it's really not true. Everyone's it's, they, they, they say in jujitsu, everyone's purple belt is different, but that's also not true. Cause that's not really helpful. It's like really his purple is equivalent to his black. I've seen purple belts submit black belts. It's not, it's not a crazy thing. Um, you can get purple belts who don't have enough mastery overall of the game to say you deserve to be a purple belt. You just there's so many parts of this game you don't know. And at the same time, the things they do know, they're extremely good at. Very deadly. 
particularly if they're athletic, um, if they can in, in pure jiu-jitsu, if they're really good at inverting, back-taking, quick. And that's exactly what Cynthia Calvillo is. She's a, a superb back-taker, right? Does she have black belt-level back-taking? I don't know. That's up for debate. But my point being is, while she is a purple belt, the core of what she's good at is really refined, especially for MMA purposes. A lot of jujitsu in MMA that's effective is just fighters with the courage to use it. Now, do you see a lot of purple belt guard players submitting people? No, not necessarily, because guard is hard to play anyone, and at a purple belt level, that's going to be tough. Calvijo might do some of it and have some success because she's just so aggressive with it. But to me, it's not a, I mean, this. she's a back taker. That's what she is. Back taking is a absolutely critical in jiu-jitsu and even more critical in MMA. said it before, what does Demi and Maya do? Take down to mount, and he hopes to get the back, but he'll take mount if that's what he has to. He wants to be on your back. It's a safe place to work from. It's a controlling spot if you're good at. If you're good at getting there, it can be relatively easy if someone doesn't have the requisite skills. It's just so, it's such a smart play. And she's naturally gifted at it, works hard at it, and has courage in her jiu-jitsu to apply it. So, like, you know, does she have, you know, how good of a gripper is she on the gi? I don't know. Does she have all the parts? Can she do baseball bat chokes? I, you know, I don't know. Can she, um, you know, how good is her over underpass? I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, all the various things that you would need over time to say you have a brown belt resume and a black belt resume. Maybe she doesn't have those things. But the core of what she has at a purple belt level, as you can see, can be very, very, very hard to deal with. There's, if you can, you can go to, uh, oh man, there's a, I mean, <laughs> go to go to any major jujitsu school, go to Marcelo's in New York City, go to Unity, go to uh, Art of Jujitsu, go to uh, Half Gracie, go to any of these places where they they make real jujitsu fighters out there, right? Atos, the whole bit, various Alianse schools. And go and look at their purple belts that have a couple of the stripes on it. And then go lock up with one. You're going to find out real fast those are tough bastards, man. They'll, they'll fall short more often than not against the Browns, and they'll almost always fall short against the black belts. But a purple belt at one of those kinds of places, they're a nightmare. They're a nightmare. Um... How likely is it that we see Jacare versus Musasi for the Bellator middleweight <laughs> title inside the next 12 to 18 months? Man, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I got asked this today. What are the chances you think of Musasi and, and Gegard going to uh, Bellator? On the one hand, I feel like they'd be prime candidates, you know? guys who aren't big stars, who uh, have a previous relationship with Scott Coker, who would be really beneficial for the Bellator brand, you know, so-so of importance for the UFC brand. On the one hand, I could easily see them as candidates. On the other hand, just to make sure the audio is still working, on the other hand, you can see another case where, geez, man, it's overstated how many guys are leaving UFC for Bellator. They had that one week where they had Larkin and Bader and McDonald, and you were like, Jeez, Louise. But on the other hand, there is at least that perception out there. And whatever the case, you know there's probably enough of a point where the UFC says, we're willing to let go of this amount of talent, but not anymore. And you have to wonder if to stem the tide of at least that appearance, if not the outright matriculation of talent, 
they would want to hold on to either one or both of those guys. I can buy that one of them might go. I have a hard time believing both might go. That to me just seems a bridge too far. But which one? I don't know. You know, in the case of Musasi, he does speak English. Uh, he probably has a lower asking price than Jacare. Um, he's younger, but he's got more miles on him from so many fights. And you got Jacare. Jacare is older and has regional significance for Brazil and to an extent, to an extent, but not as much. Musasi has some for Europe. Um, but he's much older. You know, so it's like and maybe more expensive. I don't know what they're gonna do. I don't know. It's just sort of weird. I could see both of them stay, I could see one of them go. I don't think you'll see both of them go. That to me that just feels like a bridge too far. But if they, but I will say this, if you see both of them go, whoa, look out. That would be a man, that would be huge. Really, 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 really big. What chances do you give your Wizards in these playoffs? Well, if Cleveland takes second seed, then we won't see them in the first round or the second round. So, and everyone's like, well, you got to beat all the teams no matter what. Yeah, let's, I, I'm more worried about the Cleveland's in the third round, uh, the, the Cavaliers in the third round than I am the first. So, I think they can beat the Celtics. I think they can beat basically any team except for the Cavaliers in a, in a seven-game series, uh, in the Eastern Conference anyway. And maybe even Cavaliers, but they definitely, I think they can beat Boston. I'm not saying they will, but they can. Hawks, I don't worry about too much. Um, Toronto, I don't worry about too much. Just the Cavaliers. Did you enjoy watching Barcelona fail yesterday? Who doesn't? Are you terrified for what Bayern is going to do against your Galacticos? Every year someone says this. Like, is Bayern a good team? Sure. Could they go out and blow the doors off of us like they did against Arsenal? Sure. But every year people keep saying this, and it hasn't happened in quite a long time. And by the way, I think Lewandowski, is uh, his shoulder's jacked up. So if he's not playing, I'm not hardly worried at all. Although I will say the injuries on the back line for us is a bit disconcerting. Um, so, and also, you know, Marcelo has good games and then he has bad games. Ramos is a little bit more consistent, but uh, yeah, I don't know what they're going to do with that back line. I mean, Eunice versus Waterton. Who's better where? Wrestling, grappling. Ooh, that's a good one. Wrestling, grappling. Who's got the edge? Hmm. That's tough. It's a good call. That's a great question. Striking. Man, wrestling. Waterson, I'll give a slight edge to because I think she's a better scrambler. She's a better scrambler frame. She's a little stockier. It's hard to be a great scrambler when you're lanky because you just have to bring in so much. You have to collapse your body um, more than the other person has to. You have further distance to cover. So... I would give the edge there a little bit to Waterson, but she's been submitted. You know, I could see, I could see honestly, Nami Yunus submitting her. Striking, probably Nami Yunus, and then the clinch because of the maybe the height differential and and you know Waterson's just uh, I think a little small for the weight class. I might give it to Nami Yunus. Someone says striking Nami Yunus, wrestling, grappling, Waterson clinch, slightly Nami Yunus. Yeah, more or less what I said. There you go. Look at that. Um, okay. I've seen this. I don't have a lot to offer on it, but we should at least talk about it. UFC borrowing another 100 million. So I don't know if you saw, I did, and were able to decode the Reuters article on the UFC borrowing 100 million. 
But from what I can understand, there were a few takeaways. One, UFC is ridiculously leveraged to the point they're getting triple C plus rated loans. Two, this is him they're talking, not me. They're borrowing this money so they can pay Dana and the Fertitas another $250 million, yes. And they plan on cutting $55 million in expenses compared to $10 million last year. Well, they didn't buy it till late last year. And they're on pace to cut $55 million in expenses. So keep that in mind. Is it normal for private companies to borrow this much? Remember, they're borrowing a, they're borrowing again. Like they've already got this loan and they're borrowing against other portion, not against the loan itself, but they're taking out yet more money to get um, addbacks. Did they hit the, um, what numbers did they hit that warrants paying their seller even more? And how are they going to cut five times what they did last year? What evidence have you seen? Now, I don't have a much, lot to offer on this, but someone later on in the comments has a really good answers here. I'm just going to read them out. This, I need to talk to a financial expert. This is far beyond my area of expertise. So let me just read you what this person wrote because it seems, it seems uh, interesting. Number one, WME borrowed the money to buy the UFC. The debt is on the books of WME, not UFC. Two, the UFC, according to this article, borrowed $100 million, not WME. For instance, should the UFC be sold to WME, the debt would follow UFC, not WME. The debt WME contracted to buy the UFC would stay with WME. All right, so there's a segmentation where the debt is addressed. Three, $100 million on the assets of the UFC is negligible. While tangible assets are certainly not high on their market cap, it is very reasonable. Being rated triple C plus needs to be put into context. What other sports franchise with a similar business model are being rated at these days? While $4 billion is huge for MMA, it is really a bottom mid-cap company in the business world. The first lean debt is B plus, and the second lean is triple C plus. The significance of the credit rating here should be if you see a downgrade. Four, the leverage levels are high, but the issue is the aggressive accounting addbacks used. Basically, you can borrow against your EBITDA, EBITA, earnings before taxes, depreciation, blah, blah, blah. So if you have an aggressive way of calculating your EBITDA, that means your future EBITDA could not be sustainable and thus you are over leveraged versus your earnings. As a side note, it says investors were paying above par for the loans. So that gives you an idea that the UFC is not in trouble at all. Five, the milestones are most likely based on revenues and they were most likely provisions to ensure a smooth transition from the Fertitas and Dana White. Six, and lastly, the expenses cut talks, the expenses cut Talks about labor, marketing, and third-party costs. The five-time expenses cut is most likely going to be abandoning some markets and focusing on profitable ones and cutting a bunch of fighters. Grinding out 20K per fight per fighter for each contract is going to be tedious, and if they plan on cutting that much in one year, it is unlikely they have many contracts open to renegotiation. So there you go. I don't have enough on that to say anything more than what the wonderful readers here have contributed, but take that for what it's worth. Just for fun, Ferguson versus Holloway at 155 right now. Who you got? Ferguson. Elator wage bill. Check. There we are. It's about to have a freaking heart attack. With Belter offering attractive contracts to big-name fighters over the last few months, could they be digging themselves a hole? Yes. That's why they're going into that's why they're going into pay-per-view <laughs> to offset those costs. They can't make that money back on free TV, it looks like. Or cable TV, whatever you want to call it. 
UFC 211. What do you think of the UFC 211 card? I love it. I'm going to it. Eddie Alvarez going from headlining UFC 205 to the prelims on 211. Good. He lost in spectacular fashion. Let's not put him in it. Well, I mean, he's got a tough fight, but let's not put him necessarily, you know, from the frying pan to the fire. Let's give him a little bit of time. Does it make sense why Nate turned the fight down now? Did you follow, like, the, the Diaz brothers on Facebook or on uh, Instagram or anything? Nate seems to be doing something. I don't, I mean, now, either way, I don't know what they're up to. I can only judge by social media, which, you know, can be profoundly inaccurate. However, Nate recently posted a picture of uh, a bunch of blue belts at the Gracie Academy, and he was congratulating them. You know, he was a shout out to the homies on their blue belts, 100, you know. Nate seems like such a good guy um, and still seems to be involved in MMA or martial arts generally. And I'm not saying Nick is, I don't know. But what I can say for Nick is his Instagram um, feed, especially the, the stories up top that don't go to the actual feed, is just like a parade of marijuana smoking. Like it's all about marijuana all the time. And I don't know if that's intentional. I don't know if that's for show. I don't know anything more than that. It just feels like Nate is a little bit more plugged in with the martial arts, but you know, I know, look, I know we all want them to fight all these guys. I, I know we do. I, I, I hear you completely, man. They're just doing their own thing. They got paid and they don't love MMA the way we want them to. And I don't really know what we can do about that, unfortunately. Let me look at that 211 card, though, just for uh, for completeness sake, if I may. One, main event, Steve Amiocic taking out Junior Dos Santos. Thumbs up. Again, Jacek versus Andrade. Love that fight. Frankie Edgar versus Yair Rodriguez. Interesting fight, certainly. Demi and Maya, Jorge Masvidal. Nothing wrong with that. Henry Cejudo taking on Sergio Pettis. Then, Eddie Alvarez taking on Dustin Poirier. Great fight. Chas Skelly versus Jason Knight. That's interesting. Christoph Jotko versus David Branch. Interesting. Marco Polo Reyes versus James Vick. That, that might be surprisingly exciting. And as it stands, uh, Mowgli Benitez versus Enrique Barzola. Don't really care too much about that one. Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. Transitioning from boxing to MMA. With Connor going into the boxing match with no expertise in the professional boxing world, will we ever see a high-level boxer going into MMA full-time? We saw what Holly Holm accomplished and what James Tony didn't accomplish. So will a high-level boxer succeed in MMA? Uh, someone says Lomachenko did sambo and wrestling growing up, boxing in his teens. A few years of BJJ, he could be unstoppable. Well, no, I don't think with a few years of BJJ, he could be unstoppable because his style of striking is very much for uh, boxing purposes. So even that would have to be uh, an adjustment. So I think eventually you'll probably see somebody of considerable boxing skill on the men's side eventually do really well in MMA. I don't know if they'll ever become a champion. It feels like most of those guys have a more of a grappling background than they do a striking background, but things could change, certainly. I, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, the only thing that was kind of interesting to me was something John Cavanaugh said recently, and I'm in no position to disagree. It's just something I don't quite understand. I truly mean that. Like I'm trying to think it through. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I have some questions that remain. He did an interview in uh, was it Fox Sports Australia, I believe, and he had said, you know, 
And he was actually, I think he was right. He was trying to say, look, it's not easier to train boxing if you've done MMA and you go to boxing, right? His point was like, there's less complicating factors. You're not, you don't have to worry about wrestling. You don't have to worry about jujitsu or even clinch fighting, you know? Um, and all that seems true to me intuitively. Like that all seems like, yeah, you can just drill down and focus on boxing. Um, I get that. But the thing for me is like, if someone said that about jujitsu and about wrestling, what would you say back? Right. If someone said, oh man, we don't have to worry about MMA anymore. We're, we don't have to worry about striking. We don't have to worry about wrestling. You know, this guy's style of jujitsu is he likes to grab with his lapel and then pull guard. Um, you would say, right, you don't have to worry about wrestling. You don't have to worry about striking. But when you talk about jujitsu and MMA versus jujitsu and jujitsu, it's not merely that it's more difficult, it's almost completely different. Like the the level of intricacy and specificity that goes inside of pure jujitsu versus MMA jujitsu is extraordinarily different. I mean, have any of you guys watched? We just had a couple of weeks ago the Pan Ams. Did anybody watch that on Flow Grappling? Because I did. At the black belt level, it is a ton of inverting Barambolo double guard pulls. It looks nothing like what you watch on MMA. A little bit different at brown. Purple belt and blue belt resemble more what you're accustomed to seeing. Not because people in MMA are only that good, but because that there's just a few things that inside the jiu-jitsu world translate well to MMA. And it looks like a lot of what purple belts often do. But, you know, lasso guards and, you know, uh, I mean, so much of these things have no applicability whatsoever. And it's not really, uh, you know, some people, people are like, well, all you have to do is drill down in boxing. It's like, I get it, but to me, this is why I don't quite understand it. And I truly mean, I, I mean, maybe there's an explanation here I just am not thinking of. To me, it feels like addition by subtraction, right? Yes, you're getting rid of wrestling. You're getting rid of, you know, Muay Thai striking and clinch fighting. And you're, you're getting rid of having to worry about getting your back off the cage and, and jujitsu. And that must be a relief. But now you're taking what skills you have in boxing, which are probably good, and you're going into a world where the level of intricacy and specificity and difficulty just got magnified by a million overnight. That seems difficult. That's, you know, and yes, if you go into jujitsu, you have to go into a tournament. So that's different. If you go into wrestling, you have to go to a tournament. So that feels differently. But, you know, imagine the same thing with the wrestling. Someone was like, all right, I'm going to stop doing MMA. I'm going to go try out for the Olympics. And, um, you know, I have to worry about striking. I can just focus on wrestling. And you're like, Right, but number one, the level of wrestling over there is nutso. And number two, the kind of wrestling that we're accustomed to seeing is, I mean, altogether different. Shoes on, and there's different entries, and they're doing snap downs, and they're pushing you out of bounds if it's freestyle. And it's just completely, the, the specificity is higher, the talent level is more, more difficult, and what it, from a complexion standpoint, looks like is very different. So to me, I... I don't quite know what to make of the argument. I am um, trying to noodle it through. I guess the idea is they got enough to catch up to the difference, and that I think they're banking on Mayweather being a little bit older or Connor's size advantage conferring some real benefits come fight time. Maybe that's it. I don't know. I'm trying to think it through, but that was my initial question when I heard that. So, Luke, according to the regulations, is the ref allowed to change his call once a call is made at any time during the fight for whatever reason? I don't think at any time during the fight for whatever reason. I think at certain intervals, given certain pieces of evidence, it is. If they stop a fight and have a doctor evaluate someone for what is perceived to be an illegal strike, 
and then they do what's called polling, where they talk to another referee who has better access to information, and they get more accurate information. In that circumstance, they are allowed to. But I don't think they can just decide, well, you know, I've changed my mind. No, I don't think they can do that. But there are various spaces within the course of a fight in the state of New York or in many other territories where you're able to do that. Uh, middleweight's jumping ship. Do you think either Jacare or Gagard or both will go? One might go. I don't know if both. Do you think Jacare will go out with a win on the last fight of his contract? I do like his chances against Robert Whitaker. Yes. If Jacare does leave, is he the best fighter to never fight for a title? Ooh. That's a good question. Boy, he's up there. Hmm? Man, I have to think about that one. He's up there. Who is it more? Who is it more important to keep for the UFC, Jacare or Gagard? I've been through this already. General thoughts. Uh, what is going on with Anderson? He has apparently turned down fights with Rockhold, Vitor, and according to Romero's manager, Romero as well. What is he doing? Acting like a human being. Uh, I'll explain in just a second. He must know that Diaz will not be taking the fight because it is doubtful the UFC will pay him. Your general thoughts. And someone says he wants an easy, easier fight. He probably thinks that with two wins in a row, he can get a fight with Bisping or GSP for the belt. Probably so, yes couple of factors going on here. Number one, everyone's like, look at Anderson. He'll take on any challenge at any time after UFC 200. Well, no. It turns out that like they needed him for a big moment. They probably paid it, paid him whatever he was worth, and maybe they paid him a little bit more. But he had nothing to lose there. right? He had nothing to lose there, so he took the fight. Well, now he's got a lot to lose. And so now you see him taking fights in a much more risk-averse way. This is naturally what guys are going to do. They're going to respond to the incentives in front of them, and they're going to make calculations accordingly. We like to believe in these mythology that these guys, some guys will take fights at any point against anyone. Some guys will. But, you know, he's a little bit older and longer in the tooth now. He doesn't probably have a whole lot of fights left. And um, he wants it to be worth his while. And it wants to be in a situation that is pleasing to him. And uh, he's got a little bit of leverage because they need him for that show. So he's going to respond to the rules and incentives and his needs uh, in accordance with his own vision, too. So. Keep that in mind. So, I mean, just when everyone guy steps up on late notice, always ask, what's he really getting out of this? What does it really say about him? Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing thing that he stepped up and fought Daniel Cormier on about 48 hours notice or something. No matter what, that's amazing. But at the same time, that you don't see that kind of thing followed up here should tell you that part of that was because there was some a real degree of self-interest measurement going on. As for what he's doing, so this is how I understand it. Um he doesn't. I had a Brazilian guy tell me he doesn't want to take the Vitor fight because if it's in Rio, Vitor is way more popular there than Anderson. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I heard. Pull this up to make sure the audio works. And he doesn't really want to risk, um, you know, being the bad guy there or something like that. Plus, they've already fought. I don't think he's really all that interested in it. You know why he doesn't want to fight Romero, player. I don't have to tell you anything about that, which is probably a similar reason why he doesn't want to fight Luke Rockhold. Um, the Diaz fight is a popular choice if they can make it, and he probably likes his chances. Very Mayweather-esque. A lot of folks ask you about Weidman Musasi. I would just refer you to my Herb Dean interview or my the Monday Morning Analyst. We went over this a lot. Someone says, many believe the New York State Athletic Commission were making things up as they go, but in reality, they followed all of their protocols exactly, and the right outcome ultimately ensued. I wouldn't say they followed all of their protocols exactly, but they followed enough of them that it's nullified a lot of the arguments. 
Do you think the UFC made a mistake coming to New York? No. But I think that New York needs some help. I think New York needs some help. I think that's putting it mildly. I actually spoke to Larry Hazard. If you don't know who Larry Hazard is, he's a commissioner in New Jersey. Um, and for the State Athletic Control Board there. And I asked him, I was like, I could have sworn I saw headlines when the New York MMA side of the commission was being created that you guys were liaisons and provided some advisory help. And he said, yes, we did to a very large degree. But apparently there's been turnover at the New York commission on the MMA side that, I mean, he didn't say it in these words, but it sounded like he was a little bit bothered by it that it's not clear who's really running the show there or what kind of expertise they have. You know, Kim Sumbler was the woman who was on the octagon apron who was speaking to Dan Rigliata just moments before he waved the whole thing off. Her And I mentioned this on my Monday Morning Analyst. Her background is uh, since 2008, she's been helping out with regulation on Native American territories. She's been part of the ABC's Tribal American Council and or Tribal Affairs Council, I think. And... Look, that's a really valuable and important thing. You want to make sure you've got effective regulation on Native American territories, and that can be a very difficult, daunting, and rewarding job. And I don't think that's insignificant experience, but what you can see is it's probably a pretty far jump from that to UFC number one contender fights or or UFC title fights. Like That's a very different level of care that has to be and, and the needs you know, that have to be attended to versus fights on Native American reservations. Um, you know, Mohegan Sun notwithstanding. So uh so yeah, like I think there's just a growth that has to take place there that hasn't happened yet. And I said this um I think on my radio show. Look, Mark Ratner deserves to be in the UFC Hall of Fame. He's an incredible guy who has helped maybe more than anyone helped MMA get state sanctioned and more than that, sanctioned overseas. Nice guy, knowledgeable guy, could not be a more kind gentleman on this earth. And I mean that. If you've ever talked to him in person, you know exactly what I'm saying. That being said, if I'm just trying to be honest here, I don't know that he's the best person to have in that role on the broadcast. When I was speaking to Herb Dean, it was clear to me there were a lot of referee procedures that I – you know, you're in this world every day. I'm in this world every day. I had never heard of some of this stuff. Polling? I didn't know what polling was. And so who was guiding you through that broadcast? It was Joe Rogan, John Anik, and Dominic Cruz. Now, these guys, they don't come much more um, experienced or smart in terms of MMA uh, information than, than them, but even they didn't know the rules. Like, the, the average person outside of a, a very experienced referee doesn't know half of this stuff. To the extent it's possible, and maybe it's not, but to the extent it's possible, having someone like Herb Dean or maybe Jason Herzog, or I don't know, pick a referee, Rob Hines, whatever. Having someone in that role on the broadcast walk you through what's happening. Okay, this is called polling. They're going to speak, blah, 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 blah. This is above board. This is okay. I'm not saying there wouldn't have been outrage after the fact, but maybe it would have tempered it a little bit. You know, Because as information has trickled out, what you're seeing is that a pall was cast over that bout generally, but most folks are like, ugh, you know, maybe it was the letter of the law and Maybe Big Dan was right to stop it, and maybe he was right to switch it. Maybe he was right to pull. Like You get the idea. Like There's sort of just been this reluctant acceptance that maybe it wasn't quite the meltdown that we thought it was, although I think it still was to an extent. But that could have been aided if someone in real time knew exactly what was happening. And it felt like Mark Ratner was also, in the moment, caught up 
um, which is understandable. You know, I mean, if Joe Rogan's caught up and Dominic Cruz is caught up and John Anik is caught up, Mark Ratner, as much experience as he has, is probably going to be caught up as well. But it seems to me like what you would want in that broadcast role is another referee who has those exact core competencies through their occupational work. I would like to see that adjustment made on the broadcast. All right, with that being said, let's go to the Twitter machine. Um, you can tweet me at SBN Luke Thomas, or you can use the hashtag chat rappers, and I will answer questions there. All right. A lot of middleweights have fights booked already. Make sure this audio is working. Yes, it is. So what about Anderson versus Theodoru? I think it can play into Gastelum's role. Hmm. I don't know that that makes the most sense for Brazil, but they might go that way. True or false? Last week's live chat was the illegal knee NYSAC cluster F of podcasts. Oh, it was worse than that. It was the last week was the Kimbo Dada of podcasts. Why doesn't SB Nation give John Boyce more screen time? Ask SB Nation. By the way, I was able to meet Nate Diaz recently. He is as tall or close to as tall as you. No, he's not. Um, do you think Ian McCall's next fight will actually happen? Surely his bad luck can't continue. You would think so. <laughs> you would think it, you would, you would think so, but I guess not. Why are we hung up on Rousey? Dana stated she has not said anything about a comeback. Is she even retired? This is what I was wondering as well. Now he did say it looked like in all likelihood she was going to retire after she lost, but she fought in December. And we haven't heard a peep from her. And it sounds like she's just living her life now, which is great. But you don't know. You would have thought if she was going to retire, she would have done it by now. I don't know. Part of me is like, she might come back, right? Because she hasn't made, I mean, maybe she's just going to like never say I retired and then just not also come back sort of effectively retiring, like some kind of common law marriage or something. She'll have a common law marriage with retirement. I don't know. Maybe it'll go like that, but. We'll see. All right. What are your thoughts on the Ronaldo statue? Last week's podcast was the Ronaldo statue of podcast. How can Cormier be the pound-for-pound -pound king with two title defenses in a two-year reign? I don't think he can be the pound-for-pound -pound king. So that settles that. Any update on the double M, triple A? Nope. They don't want to talk. Why are people surprised DC isn't popular? Look at who's popular in MMA. Connor and Ronda are more like Jones. Connor and Ronda like Jones? That doesn't sound right. Look, Dominic Cruz was right. Ultimately, fans are just going to pick who they like and who they don't like. Yes? Um, that goes for MMA media too, by the way. But when you try to really parse it down and figure out, like, what the is there a rational basis? Like, is Cormier out there being like, you know, even Hitler didn't use chemical weapons in the way that Assad did on Passover? Yeah, you might be like, wow, that Cormier guy's a real dick. That's a dumbass thing to say. But he didn't really do that. Now, yeah, he did lean on the towel, but okay. But we were talking about how much people disliked him well before that. So maybe he gave them ammunition after the fact. Look, I don't think there really is a rational basis by which you can say, I don't like Daniel Cormier, but you don't have to have a rational, rational basis. If you're a fan, if that's what you are, if you're watching this right now, you don't, you don't need a rational basis. You get to like whoever you like. You get to hate whoever you like. Do I know anything about who 
Messi is in real life? No. He might be an awesome guy when he's not cheating on his taxes. I, I mean, I don't know. Might be an incredible dude. Same with Neymar and Suarez, Bucktooth ass Suarez. Maybe Suarez biting people he just misunderstood. I don't know. I don't know anything about him, but I don't need to know anything about him because I am a fan of Real Madrid. And so I get the license to hate on them, however irrational it may be. That is absolutely my right, and I intend to enjoy it because in my other occupational field, I don't get the chance to do that. I get to scratch that itch there. So you don't have to defend to me like your reason. And in fact, if you try to like cobble together, like here are these reasons where, you know, he really rubbed me the wrong way. Fine. You're allowed to have your preferences there. But like, if you're trying to say, wow, those reasons are rooted in some kind of correct demonstration of who Daniel Cormier is as a person, the whole thing falls apart. You're just talking about reasons you think exist that may or may not really actually exist. So, um, if you hate Daniel Cormier, hate him, hate his guts, boo him, do what you want. It's fine. But, uh, that's your right as a fan, you know? Who do you think Silva ends up fighting at 212? Vitor? I know he doesn't want to fight Vitor, but I don't know who else they're going to put in that slot, man. Somehow 2-0 down Dortmund. God, they've been unlucky. Tune in live chat and listen to this donk too. All right. Jesus, are they ready? Is Dortmund already down 2 nothing to Monaco? Really? Dortmund. Monaco score. A oh, one two now. Seventy ninth minute though. Damn. Monaco's good, man. Old Mbappe, however you pronounce his name. That dude is sick, man. Bet you the doctor ends up flying United in the future. <laughs> Guaranteed lock. If it's the most convenient. If it's the most convenient, we'll do it. Thoughts on Neymar suspension? Yeah, good. I gotta miss him at all. My guess is UFC gonna make Ronda versus Misha three for International Fight Week in July. I mean, I've heard nothing of the sort, and we're getting pretty close to that wanted to be announced. Oh, there we go. Just as I say that, Mbappe gets his second. No controversy this time. Just a great instinct to pounce and finish three one. I'll tell you, man, that kid is. Monaco produces good, good players, man. And they're on fire this year. Like Hamas, he came from Monaco, yes? All right. Come back to these questions here. Anthony Johnson's performance. Hi, Luke. Do you think Anthony Johnson phoned it in on Saturday? His game plan was baffling. The last 30 seconds of the fight, it seemed like he had pretty much gave up. And after the fight, he really didn't seem to care that he lost. I'm a big fan of Rumble, but the events that occurred on Saturday made me question just how motivated he was going into it and, and what he knew he was going to do in this final fight. You know, if I was one of the fans, I might be kind of upset about it, but, like, I thought about this, too. When I was watching the fight, I'm like, dude, what are, why are you wrestling him? This makes no sense. And then the other one, the, for me, the telltale sign was you had Cormier lock up the the, the uh, choke, and he's, got, he's grabbing the bicep, but this hand is, like, on the head here. You know, it's not – go back and watch the Oliveira one. The hand was here, like this. Well, you're not going to peel that off, right? It was on here. All I got to do is pull it down. It's hard to choke someone with one arm. You got to be really good at it. And um, he didn't even hand fight. He didn't even hand fight. I was like, what? What? He just collapsed. And then he retired. And it's like, look, I tried to think this through. It was like, he made weight easily. He made weight a 203.8 with pants on. So that means he trained. That means he dieted. That means he ran when he was supposed to. That means he lived a kind of life like, 
all of the telltale signs of somebody who was ready to compete. I mean, this wasn't Rampage against Mo in their second fight. Like, he looked ready to rock, you know? But in the end, it just, I mentioned this with the, with the Bellator guys. You know, we don't really know what it looks like when old men fight because we don't watch a whole lot of it. But from what we've seen, guys who are a little bit over the hill when they compete, they don't compete with the same kind of ferocity or intensity or commitment that young guys do. And I'm not saying Anthony Johnson is old, but what I am saying is at 33, he seemed burned out and just didn't have the same kind of ferocity. So do I think he went in there intending to lose? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. But I don't think he went in there intending to fight with all his might. And maybe you're upset with that. And I can understand that. That would be a very, be a very, very fair thing. Any word on when Carlos Condit will be back? Nope. None. Zero. State of the light heavyweight division. Look, I'm struggling to see a decent future for light heavyweight with Rumble retiring. Cormier implying an impending retirement and John Jones being John Jones. What are the UFC looking to gain from this division now? As much as they can. Any other division. Are they best pushing a Weidman up to try and challenge that division? Depending on how things go. Hoping Gustafson puts some wins together and Serkinov steps up? Yep. They're going to hope for a similar kind of thing at uh, Featherweight. It's going to be harder to come by at light heavyweight, but that this old guard retires and a new guard comes up. But that's why, you know, I mean, Bader's a little bit older, but that's why, you know, I'm glad they re-signed Serkinov. But, you know, letting Krilov go, I mean, I get they need to cut costs, but it's good. If they look, here's the fact we need to accept cutting costs in the way they are cutting costs and letting guys go in the way they're letting guys go, it's going to be hard for UFC to maintain not merely divisional dominance, but divisional intrigue on every division. It's not going to be possible. It's possible when you have total control over an industry or at least, you know, really significant control. You know, when UFC bought Strike Force and then brought everyone over eventually and they bought WEC and brought everyone over. Boy, it was really interesting because you had basically more or less all the best guys. And divisions go up and down, and some divisions are easier to to funnel in new talent like lightweight. Light heavyweight is hard to funnel in new talent, and or harder anyway. And um, they've been letting guys go. Guys are aging out. Guys are retiring. Um, it's going to make it very difficult, if not impossible, to make every division as interesting as you need it to be. And that's just a reality we're going to have to accept. Uh, this is this is your new future. Bellator might legitimately, I'm not saying they do in the light heavyweight case, but it's very conceivable that there are going to be organizations outside the UFC that have divisions that are more interesting um, than the UFC for divisions the UFC already has, right? Who's got the most interesting welterweight division? Well, it's still UFC. Boy, Bellator's welterweight division is pretty damn good. It's, it's interesting, right? And with a few more changes, it could be better. It's very, very possible. So it's that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, they gotta get they gotta find these next guys and they gotta turn them into big stars to the extent possible. Hi, Luke. Cyborg is getting cold in the fridge while UFC fumbles through their fight matchups, baffling. Create her division and forget about her. She has a big money fight, so everyone eats. She's begging for a UFC 214 fight end of July, champ or not. What are your th thoughts on Cyborg versus Dan Dwyer? I mean, it wouldn't last long, right? Um, Demandami and Megan have appeared to be scared champs, and they're not scared. And honestly, they sold me out of the matchup for now. Fair enough. 
Most fighters would jump at the chance for history and money. No, they wouldn't. Uh, some would. Many wouldn't. In 2017, belts are kind of decorative. Dan Dua has a great record, beautiful look, strong following, and she's been featherweight. Yeah, but she would get smashed by Cyborg. BFFs with Misha, Beat Megan, and Yorina, Cyborg's last kickboxing loss, and she's begging for Cyborg for years. Tons more reasons. Yeah, I agree they should make it. I agree. But um, there might be a cost issue. There might be a regulatory issue. There might be who they want at that time on that place in the calendar issue. There could be a lot of sort of complicating factors there. Uh, all right, we'll end on this one. Y'all can kill me for this since I jacked it up so badly. Last week's audio fiasco. Make sure it's still working now. Yes, it is. Hi, Luke. Just want to stop by and say that you are a terrible live streamer. You are correct. Your streaming is like Kelvin Gastelum's weight cutting. I'm only half joking. You don't need to half joke. You could be, you're right on the money. I watch all your live chats, even the ones where the audio is a little off. I enjoy your content that much. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. But question, why don't you have another recording device running while you stream so that you always have a backup version? It could be an old MP3 player, your phone, a camera, your computer, almost anything. I imagine it must be frustrating to do the live chat and have it not recorded. And I, as your viewer, would rather have at least an audio-only version than nothing at all. What do you think? Yes, I will do that. Let me end on this with this note. Um, I know a lot of you believed I would never get the t-shirts done, and they did take longer than I anticipated. However, I am working on something. Um, this background is getting boring and it's old and it's the same box that y'all have been looking at me forever. And that's got to go, right? This, this is boring. This sucks. But if it's going to get changed, it's up to me to do it. And so you should know that I have for the last, Jesus, several months, I have inquired about what it would take to do something, to make a significant change, to improve this. Um, both from the consistency of the audio quality to the streaming quality to the look of this to the whole nine yards, how much it would cost, what, what, how feasible is it. My wife and I are literally rearranging our home to do this. Um, it is it is in the process. Now, what it's ultimately going to look like, we're still trying to figure that out. But um, we, I am, we are in the process of making a, a substantial overhaul of this process between you and I um, to make it better. Now it's going to come out of my pocket and it's going to come out of my brain and my wife's brain and our efforts. So um, so you got to bear with us. I know the t-shirts took a long time, largely for aesthetic reasons, not so much logistical ones, but um, a change is going to come. A change is going to come and it's not going to be a little one. It's going to be a substantial one, a major, major, major overhaul because this is getting this screen set up this me talking to a microphone and there's no audio intro, there's no nothing, uh, is boring. It's getting old and it needs to change. But if it's going to change, it's because I'm going to do it. Uh, the responsibility is uh, is mine to fix if, if it's anyone's. So we're working on it. So I appreciate everyone who has watched the live chat low these many years, all in lo-fi, terrible-ass quality with inconsistent streaming and everything else. But just know that I know that this needs an upgrade. I know that you deserve an upgrade, and I know that it can be even better if we can begin to incorporate things that make this and take it to the next level, the next several levels, to be honest. So bear with me. It's something we're working on, and uh, I am very, very uh, hopeful for what this can be. So there you go. All right. Give the video a like. Check out the Luke Thomas show. I'll have uh, Gary Marinovich on my show today, so that should be a lot of fun. 
And uh, like this video, subscribe to the channel, all that good stuff. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, stay frosty.